0: Join me in Luke chapter 2. We continue walking through the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, we will look this morning at verses 21 through 40. The sermon this morning is, My eyes have seen your salvation. The key words for our worshipers in training are temple, Gentile, and heart. Now, last week we looked at the great story of Jesus' birth. If you recall, we, we keyed in on the humble circumstances in which our Savior came into the world. The Son of God from the highest of heights descending to the lowest of low for the redemption of his people. It's amazing. We considered the several implications of the incarnation, the huge ramifications that are for mankind because Jesus entered the world. And so this morning we pick up from there. Joseph and Mary are still in Bethlehem in verse 21, and beyond that we will see them in Jerusalem. So let's begin in verse 21, Luke chapter 2. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So as we saw with John the Baptist, Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day in keeping with the law of God, God's ceremonial law. Jesus was, as Paul points out in Galatians 4, 4, born under the law. God's righteous requirement for all of mankind is fulfilled completely in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law of God and therefore he was to be born under the law. Because of our sin nature, we are completely unable. God's people throughout history have been completely unable to live up to God's requirement, God's standard of the law, and therefore Jesus is born under the law to fulfill it perfectly. On our behalf, down to the smallest of details. We see it even here at the beginning of Jesus' life with, with all that Joseph and Mary are doing. They're doing these things as righteous, devout Jews obeying the law of God. And as a result, Jesus is able to live up to the law of God. They do this with their newborn child, Jesus. So Christ was born as a slave to the law that we could be set free from the bondage that rests therein. And this is why the name of Jesus is so significant, as Luke points out. The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Jesus is the Greek name Joshua, Yeshua. Think about what God did through Joshua in the Old Testament. And this really highlights the significance of Jesus all the more. Joshua and what he did in leading the Israelites into the Promised Land across the Jordan is all pointing forward to Christ. Christ leading his people into the Promised Land. Remember, Joshua led the Israelites after Moses. Previously, Joshua's name was Hoshea, salvation because of his faith and his leadership and believing that they could conquer the promised land with God on their side, Moses gave him the name Joshua. And the name not only is significant because it is Jehovah is salvation, but it suggests deliverance. It carries this meaning of being delivered by a heroic action, delivered from bondage. That's exactly what Christ does. Delivers us from bondage. So remember, his name is not an accident. Luke points out the very fact that it was given by the angel Gabriel when he visited Mary. Mary. Matthew one twenty one highlights the significance of Jesus' name when the angel appears to Joseph and says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so his name is very significant. Let's read on verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now we've seen several times in these first two chapters, the humble estate of Joseph and Mary, and we see it again here in Mary's offering for purification, you remember in her Magnificat, Mary's song of praise to the Lord. Mary proclaimed that God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She's speaking of her, of her poverty. So according to the law, 40 days after one's birth, purification is to be made. And three things were involved in this purification. First, it was the woman's purification a sacrifice was to be made on behalf of the woman at the court of women for her purification. Secondly, was the redemption of a firstborn son. Now Luke doesn't point to this, but we realize from the law in Leviticus that five shekels were to be offered for the firstborn son and his redemption. And thirdly, is the consecration of the firstborn son is the very thing we see happening here. So Joseph and Mary are now in Jerusalem, 40 days past the birth of Jesus. They're at the temple in Jerusalem in fulfillment of God's law. And the reason I mention their poverty is because of the sacrifice that is offered for Mary's purification. Here's what we find in Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. This is the very thing that's going on here. Leviticus 12, 6 through 8. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb a year old for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. And here it is. And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall So this is obviously what's happening here with Mary. Mary's humble offering. She brings the offering that is for a woman who is poor. It's a public declaration of their poverty. And over the first two chapters, we cannot miss what Luke continues to point out. God did not, God does not come to those who are self-sufficient, And here's the thing, I think Christians need this reminder regularly. You never have been and you never will be adequate. You in and of yourself are never good enough to merit, to deserve God's favor. You will never merit God's grace and God's mercy and God's love in and of yourself. You cannot clean yourself up to the point of deserving what Christ has accomplished for you. And I think something strange happens when people become Christians a lot of time. We go from this state of recognizing our absolute spiritual poverty, our complete sinfulness, our complete need for a Savior, an inability to do anything of our own that is good and right. We repent, we call on Jesus, and then we move to this state of everything always being fine. Yes, we recognize we're sinful, but we can't actually identify anything of sin in our lives. We're always good. Everything's always fine. It's strange, isn't it? We become Christians and then all of a sudden we're not honest anymore. And maybe it's, maybe it's not you, but there are very few hours that go by in my life that aren't reminders of my own spiritual poverty and need for Jesus. We're weak and needy people, aren't we? We're screwed up. <laughs> we need redemption. And by His grace, God shows mercy to those who humble themselves to a place Of repentance those who recognize their inability to clean themselves up so if we only learn one thing from chapters 1 and 2 of Luke let it be this God is not impressed with anyone's illusions of self-sufficiency the idea of a self sufficient Christian is an absolute oxymoron it doesn't make sense Jesus reminds us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But he offers a promise to us, doesn't he? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. It requires a humility of our hearts. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, all of your attempts at being a good person, all of your attempts at cleaning yourself up and earning God's favor, they're not working. Humble yourself, repent, and trust in Jesus alone. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, that our sufficiency is from God and God alone. Verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, we're introduced to this man, Simeon. And you're going to notice that he walks on the scene for a few verses in Luke But then he's gone again. He's in and out. There's nothing before in the Bible that's said about him specifically, there's nothing after. The name Simeon was very common, but it had a great meaning. God has heard. So consider the scenario here. For the most part, at this point in time, the Israelites were mostly apostate and mostly hypocritical. Many of them were very religious, but they were not devout to the religion of God. They adhered to the religion of man. So, really, there's a parallel here. Israel, in many ways, was very much like we see in a lot of American Christianity. A lot of them said they were Jewish. A lot of them went through the motions, but very few were actually true followers of God. We see that all the time, right? They may talk about God. They, They may be very zealous about their laws and their traditions, but their hearts are far from God. Only some were found to be righteous, and Simeon was one of them. Remember it's been 400 years since God delivered his last word through the prophet Malachi. And Malachi said that the son of righteousness would rise with healing on his wings, but many of the people paid no attention whatsoever to that promise. Only a small remnant of people were awaiting anxiously the son of righteousness. In this context, William Hendrickson writes this. This man, Simeon, was waiting for the consolation of Israel. To be sure, conditions were bad, very bad, in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Think of loss of political independence, cruel King Herod, externalization of religion, legalistic scribes and Pharisees and their many followers, worldly-minded Sadducees, the silence of the voice of prophecy, and on and on. But in the midst of all this darkness, degradation, and despair, there were men who were hopefully looking forward to and earnestly expecting the consolation of Israel. There were such men. And women too, already mentioned, were Mary and Elizabeth. And in a moment, Luke is going to add Anna to the list. And very sadly, the list is very short. Let's read on, verse 27. And he, Simeon, came in the Spirit into the temple... Now, Simeon is most likely an older man. In verse 29, we read that he's ready to die and he knows now that he can because the promise of God through the Holy Spirit has been fulfilled. He has seen the Messiah. Simeon is really a, a representative of sorts personifies the expectant Jews, those who were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, the true believing Israel who trusted in God as their hope and salvation and were waiting and waiting and waiting no long, no, no, matter how long that would be, they would wait and they knew that the Messiah would come because God had promised it. So now we see Simeon enter the temple. His heart is full of thanksgiving. His heart is full of praise. He's being guided by the Holy Spirit. And we see here the Holy Spirit took care that at that very moment that Joseph and Mary entered the temple, Simeon did as well. And Simeon takes Jesus in his hands and he praises God. He begins to bless God in song. He has a profound sense of peace and joy. He has in his hands the long-awaited Messiah. Think of this. The Messiah that was promised 4,000 years earlier and promised by God to be the seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent and make right what the fall of Adam made wrong. Man's only hope for redemption was right there in his hands. It's amazing. So he recognizes, now I'm happy to die. It doesn't get any better than this. He was ready to rest at peace with God forever. And he gave his reason in verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus was and Jesus is God's salvation. Remember, very famously, Jesus said later in his life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am God's salvation. And true peace comes only when we, like Simeon, understand that Jesus is our salvation, our only hope for true joy, our only hope for peace. Our souls must rest in Christ alone. And notice, too, the salvation of God, Simeon recognizes, is a salvation extending beyond the Israelites. It's a salvation that is universal in its offering. We see that in verses 31 and 32. You have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now now think about the significance of Simeon's words for you and for I. We are, I think every one of us, we are a Gentile people. And we were sung about by a Jewish prophet in the temple while he held the Messiah in his hands. Jesus is our light in a very dark and sinful world. He is our salvation and he is the glory of Israel. So Jesus is a light to us Gentiles and the full realization of Israel's glory. Verse 33, and his father and his mother, Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him, about Jesus. Do you marvel at this great reality? Seriously, think about that. Are you amazed by the great truth that Jesus, God in the flesh, is your salvation? Or are you numb to it? Do you think, yeah, I've I've got it, Let's, let's move on? If we're honest, I think we'll admit that we find ourselves there from time to time, don't we? If we're not giving ourselves to the daily pursuit of God in private worship, before we realize it, Jesus becomes an accessory to us. Is the cross on a chain that you wear around your neck and nothing else? Or is the cross something causing you to constantly marvel at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? I believe at times as Christians we get so used to hearing the gospel that it doesn't come across to us as the Apostle Paul wrote. The power of God for salvation. At times I talk about the gospel with others. This is, this is me. And it seems that it comes across from me, from my own heart, no more significant than, than talking about the weather or my, my golf game or what I had for dinner last night. But there's other times, and I'll tell you in my life, it's a direct correlation to how closely I'm walking with the Lord At times, I've had a hard time even talking about the gospel and singing certain songs without crying like a baby because I'm so amazed at what God has done. Marveling at the fact that Christ is our salvation and he purchased it with his own life blood. Our hearts are fickle, aren't they? We can't even go a week have a hard time going a day or an hour completely amazed at our salvation in Christ. We need to pray regularly, God, increase my desire for you. Give me greater longings. Amaze me with the gospel. Amaze me with Christ that I would marvel at who He is, what He has done. And friend, if you do not know Christ, I commend him to you. He is your only hope of salvation. Delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now these words are meant for all of us, though the mention of the sword piercing the soul is meant for Mary alone. So let's talk about that first. This prophetic word would be tremendously significant to Mary in the days ahead. And she recognized, if you recall from her song, she said that future generations would call her blessed among women. But now she gets the rest of the story from Simeon. This is a part of God's promise in Genesis 3.15 that the Jews did not understand at all. God said that the seed of woman would crush the head of the serpent and they were all waiting for that. But he also said, what would happen first? His heel would be bruised. What was meant by that? Mary was soon to find out exactly what that meant. Mary learns that her future with her son Jesus would be filled with much sorrow. Right out of the gate, their family has to flee to Egypt to save Jesus' life as an infant. She would see her son to be misunderstood and rejected his entire life. She would see one week he is hailed as king and the next he is spit upon, beaten, his beard plucked out, he's mocked, he's ridiculed. And then she would watch him to die on a cross, a sword thrust in the heart of a mother the most honored mother of all would know some of the greatest pain of all. The rest of Simeon's prophecy refers to two groups of people, one which falls and another that rises. As we've already mentioned, for the humble, needy, poor in spirit, this is good news. It is these who will be recipients of God's grace. For the haughty, prideful, self-sufficient types, it means judgment. It means condemnation. The Apostle Paul highlights the significance of this twofold aspect of Jesus' coming as a Messiah in Romans 9.33. He's quoting the Old Testament and, and writes, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, a person's attitude toward Jesus is absolutely decisive in their eternal destiny. Some will reject him, and as a result, they will fall and be excluded from the kingdom of God. But others, by the sovereign grace of God, will accept him, they will rise, and they will be welcomed to the kingdom and its wedding feast in the end. Now notice too, in Simeon's words, Israel is not excluded here. In spite of all their advantages, the vast majority of them would reject Jesus and fall to their condemnation. It's tragic. Look to verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, of Jerusalem. So Luke paints a picture that appears as though Anna virtually never leaves the temple as she is worshiping and fasting and in prayer night and day. Now, in cursory reading of this, it seems maybe a bit random that Luke includes Anna here. Out of nowhere. But there is a striking similarity between Anna and what we just saw of Simeon. Anna, like Simeon, was longing for the Messiah to come. There's no doubt in the way that Luke writes here that the coming of the Messiah is the very thing that she spent most of her time praying for. She was waiting, Luke writes, for the redemption of Jerusalem. Remember, likewise, Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. They wanted Israel to be consoled by the great counselor. They wanted to be redeemed by the Messiah, the great redeemer. And just like Simeon, we see in verse 38 that Anna shows up at just the right moment to see the Christ child. And she gives thanks to God. And she speaks of him to all the other Jews who were awaiting his arrival. Think of this. For Anna, this meant a life devoted to prayer and fasting. Decades. Probably 60 years since her husband's death. To whom the text tells us she was married only seven So Luke is putting on display the way in which faithful, righteous people respond to the promises of God. God promised the coming of the Messiah. So even though 400 plus years had passed with no word from God at all, what were Simeon and Anna doing? Waiting, praying, fasting, longing for his coming. And God responded to them in a big way, didn't he? They didn't know the full picture. Simeon and Anna didn't know how it would all come together, what it would look like, but God was so kind to them, so much mercy given to them, even in a glimpse before they died of what they so passionately longed to see. I don't know about you, but I am rebuked by Simeon and Anna and their faithfulness. I want that kind of faith, that that hopes in God and his promises so much that I live my life with longing, a life of fasting and prayer. As I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Their hopes were based upon the promises of God, just like ours. But here's the stinger for me in faithlessness. We have seen so much more than Simeon and Anna. How much more of the Messiah we know and we can hope in. Think of it. Anna never saw Jesus' compassion She never saw Jesus' miracles. All the people he healed, the people made well, the dead raised to life. The power he displayed over all creation, his words of authority, his words of wisdom. Anna didn't see Jesus prepare himself for death, crucified for our sake on Calvary, raised from the dead. She never knew of the world-changing words, it is finished. She never saw this. She never saw the triumph over sin and death and hell. But she believed and she trusted and she waited. But we have. Jesus isn't walking here on this earth, but but we have the full picture. We walk by faith, not by sight. So shall we long for Jesus any less than Simeon and Anna long for Jesus? Do we think that seeing Jesus in the flesh makes us any more likely to trust in him, to hope in him, to have great faith in him, to find our assurance in his promises any more than we have in his sufficient word? It didn't work for anyone in his day, did it? Why would it be any different for us? Why would it be any different for us that we saw Jesus in the flesh than it was for Peter, than it was for all the disciples, for all who followed Jesus in his ministry? What an indictment against our blindness if we think our faith would be greater in his presence than it is in the promises of his word. As God's people, we must ask Him to give us a longing, a yearning for Jesus that is more intense than Simeon or Anna because we see the entire picture. We have the whole package. We have beheld His glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father. Shall we hunger any less for His appearing? Paul said he was going to receive a crown of righteousness with all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, I pray that God would make us to be Simeons and Annas, longing for more and more and more of Christ, yearning for greater union with Christ, greater communion with Jesus that we may know him more fully, delight in his goodness, delight in his grace more richly than ever before. Can we pray that together this year? Let's do it. Let's pray that God would do that for us. Lastly, verses 39 and 40. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The favor of God was upon him. And as his children, because the favor of God was upon Jesus, the favor of God is upon us. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would give each and every one of us a greater longing, a greater zeal, a greater desire for more of Jesus in our lives. May it be said of us, as it was said of Simeon and Anna, that we have great hope and great trust in your promises because you are a faithful God who keeps covenant to a thousand generations. Help us to be a faithful people, God. Cause us to have greater longings for Jesus. and in our dryness in our faithlessness remind us of the power of the gospel unto our salvation remind us that as those who were dead in transgressions and sins that Jesus removed himself from the highest of heights in the heavenly realm and lowered himself to the lowest of lows on the earth that he would die for our sins. That He would cause us to be born again. That we can hope in the resurrection from the dead. That we would live and dwell with Christ forever and ever. Lord, help us to marvel at that great truth as Joseph and Mary marveled. Because our eyes have seen your salvation. We behold in your word all the work of Jesus Christ, all that he accomplished, all that he did, all that he was and all that he is on our behalf. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, pleading on our behalf and by his blood, we are washed clean. And as we stand before the judge, that we know with absolute certainty that we will be declared not guilty. It's by your love. It's by your grace. It's by your mercy. Make us to be amazed by that, oh God. Help our hearts to not grow cold to the gospel. Thank you. Thank you for your love and thank you for bearing with us and for loving us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.